This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence show. Once again, and as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel M. Lavery. With me in the studio this week, aside from two dogs, because I now have two dogs. Never used to have two dogs, just had the one. And I must say I was a chump because now I can pet two dogs at once. That aside, with me in the studio this week is also Claire Cox, a writer and high school teacher and author of the forthcoming novel, Silver Beach. Claire, welcome to the show. How many dogs have you seen today? Zero. But I heard birds from a neighbor down the hall. Oh, b- birds that your neighbor owned. I, I thought you meant you heard just regular outside birds through your neighbor somehow. No, like caged birds. I'd never heard them before. I don't know if they're new, but no dogs. I'm sorry. I hope you do get to see a dog today if seeing a dog is something that you believe would bring you joy. Yeah. I'd have to leave the house, I think. In that case, I just hope you hear the birds <laughs> saying a yeah. lot of interesting things. Are they talking birds or are they like chirruping birds? They're chirruping birds. Nothing wrong with that, Claire. I don't want to... No. I don't want to come down too hard against your neighbor. I don't want to come down too hard against the birds and the dogs in your building. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm thinking a lot about dogs right now. I have that real two dog high because yeah. it's two dogs, Claire. You know, they, they play with each other and you don't even have to do anything. That's magical. And one of them is a puppy? One of them is a little puppy. Well, oh the God. big one is only eight months old. So it's, it's really like a, a puppy and a, a teenager kind of a situation. And which is incredible in any species. It, it is absolutely shocking how much fun it is just to watch them go. And I just feel like a fool for not having done this before. But I'm here now and I feel wiser and, and more equipped to give people advice, which is great because we have some real problems here today yeah. uh, facing us. I'm very glad that I was able to save a couple of teaching-related questions for an actual teacher because that's a hard job, especially now. And this first question is quite thorny. And I'm yeah. very much looking forward to getting your help answering it. Would you please read our first letter? Uh, I would love to. Subject, my wife is making me an unpaid supervisor. Dear Prudence, my wife is a high school chemistry teacher. She's smart, talented, caring, and wants the best for her students. She's also a perfectionist and struggles with severe anxiety. We're both working remotely and no family is around to help us. My job is demanding too. I work 10 hours a day but nothing on the scale she does, practically 24-7. I'm doing everything else around the house, from cooking, cleaning, grocery shopping, managing our finances, checking both our mail, to teaching and playing with our daughter. The latter is not a chore, but she notices the absence of her mom. During my wife's rare breaks, she complains about how badly everyone treats teachers and how the pandemic is making a difficult job even harder, both true. In the few minutes of breaks my wife has between classes, she complains... I don't understand that sentence. It seems like a typo. Um, She complains about how badly something. She commissions me to review her lesson plans, give her feedback, take pop quizzes, suggest activities, and review every email she's sending for work before hitting send. She's super competent and is performing incredibly well, yet she continually doubts herself. Every time I tell her not to rely on me, it ends in a fight and her begging me to help. I acquiesce most of the time. 
I'm also not qualified to do what she does, and I'm exhausted of having another job on top of the demanding one I already have. This also contributes to a lack of intimacy between us. It's like she's in a perpetual state of panic. I take meds for my depression, but she refuses to talk to a therapist or take any meds. She claims she has no times and that these things don't help. I try to see the positive in all of this, even though I may have painted a picture of despair, and don't get me wrong, there are good days, but I don't know how I can sustain that positivity without something changing. Yeah, I also don't know how this letter writer has frankly been able to sustain any positivity throughout all of this. So I'm impressed, letter writer, that you have made it this far. For real. To me, this feels like it has relatively little to do with the specific challenges that she does face as a teacher um, and much, much more to do with her inability to see um, any possible treatment for her anxiety beyond getting my partner to panic with me all day, every day. Does that strike you as reasonable? Yes. I mean, it's not reasonable to ask your partner to panic with you all day, every day, but what you're saying is reasonable. No, certainly not. Um, But it it seems like it's not as if any teacher in her position would also be doing this same thing um, and saying, this is the only thing that's going to help me get through this. So I I think it's possible for this letter writer to not stop being sympathetic towards her obviously incredibly stressful position, but to decline to agree with her kind of painting the situation as it is because my job is is so stressful right now that right. I must do this this is the only option right it's and and this is this is crisis this is a crisis level this is a crisis something needs to change this is not going to keep working it's not working now and it can't keep happening right um, and I think it's hard because when somebody is struggling with anxiety, when the ways in which they are overloading somebody else or not being present for their kid is driven by something that's clearly distressing to them and making them unhappy. I think especially if you're their partner, it can feel really difficult to draw a hard line because it's like, I know this isn't malicious. You're not being cruel uh, to our daughter and you're not doing this just out of sheer whimsical nefariousness. So there's, I think, the temptation to think, like, if I could just understand her position a little bit better and explain my own a little bit more, then we'll get somewhere. But I think you can maintain a lot of compassion for the clear distress that she's in and Mm -hmm. also draw a harder line than just, I'm not going to do this again. Oh, shoot, you're upset. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I really, I really, really feel for this letter writer and I feel for um, their partner, um, I think public education in this country is a setup for education workers. I think this this type of workload is super common, uh, which is insane. And I think it often feels non-negotiable because what's at stake is the education and well-being of children, and they feel like your own children. And so I think a lot of educators take on um, this sense of like, well, I have to do all these things. And if they take 80 hours a week, then they take 80 hours a week. Um, And it's also an explicit expectation from a lot of supervisors. Um, Mm -hmm. But it is not sustainable. Their marriage can't sustain this. Her relationship with their kid cannot sustain this. Her mental health cannot sustain this. Um, For me, in my teaching life, when I have felt the most pinched, like 70-hour work weeks and a preschooler, I just made a hierarchy of my teaching tasks. And I decided which ones I had to do and which ones I didn't have to do right then. And then I mostly never did those things. And that, and I limped through the year and then I got a job at a different school. 
But take a mental health leave if you can. I mean, geez, Louise. I think maybe the way to start having this conversation in a new way with your wife is to start by talking about how it's affecting your child. Yeah. I, in part, just because I think that's probably the most important aspect. Um, and also because I think that might potentially get through to her in a way that other attempts haven't. And I think the way to start with it is not, hey, we really need to cut back or like, I'm, I'm saying one more time how much I can't keep doing that. But to say, we've been talking about this a lot, about how much you rely on me to kind of uh, proofread all of your work every day. When we've previously talked about it, um, you've said that you don't have time to either see a therapist or take medication and that those things don't help. You haven't tried either of them, right. so you don't know that they don't help. I believe personally that that's part of the anxiety talking um, because the sort of goal is to, not the goal as if, as if anxiety has desires, but part of what anxiety does is it enables you to convince yourself that nothing will ever get better. Um, that you have to obsessively manage and control your symptoms by yourself through sheer force of will, and that this is the only way. Um, and I think you should share that with your wife. That, I believe, is another symptom. Um, beyond yeah. that, you are going to have to make time for this. Your relationship with your daughter is suffering. She misses you. She talks about how she misses you. You are not present for her any longer. Um, and our marriage is taking a real hit. I love you so much about our relationship is good. I'm not saying that I'm ready to walk out the door tomorrow, but this is getting unsustainable and this doesn't need to change 10 or 20% around the edges. I need you to know this uh, because if you don't take it seriously and if you don't take steps to find other ways to treat your anxiety and depression, our marriage will continue to suffer and I'm going to have to find ways to set up stricter boundaries with you and pull away to make sure that I have time to keep the house clean, our kid fed and attended to, and myself like able to sleep and take a shower. I would love to do that together. If you're not on my team for that, I'm going to do it myself. And that would make me really sad. And I know that that will be kind of difficult to blend both the compassion and some of the firmness, but I do think you need to get firm here. I think you've given a lot of space to how much anxiety she has and how bad she feels. I'm not worried about you losing sight of that. I'm not worried about you getting too hard on her. Um, so, you know, there also needs to be an element of regardless of how you're feeling internally, the way that you're acting is hurting your child and it's hurting me. You are behaving unfairly and unlovingly towards me. And that's just as important as how panicked you must be on the inside all the time. Like, I also want you to get help for that but it's just as important that you are treating the people you love pretty badly. And to be a good teacher, you don't have to, you actually don't have to do all the things she's doing. You really don't. You, you can just send emails. You don't have to review lesson plans. They're probably fine. Also, it's a pandemic. Like, it, there's a lot of stuff you can kind of phone in. Yeah, and I think that's, that's to me what makes it so clear. The, the bigger issue is not just the unfair workload, which is absolutely there, but yes. it's also her inability to say, I'm going to give this email 80%. And, you know, uh, it, is, it is not part of her job description that she has a non-teacher romantic partner who reviews all of her lesson plans. Right, That's exactly. not an expectation that her job has of her. That's something her anxiety is telling her that she needs. And you, letter writer, get so triggered by her own anxiety. You get so worried when she's distressed. You'll do anything to stop it. I get that. That's often my reaction to a partner's distress too. But every time that you give in because she's upset you know, you've created a bigger problem for yourself a little further down the road, I think. Yeah. 
So I think now is also the time letter writer. You say there's no family around to help. Um, if you have any relatives or any friends that you're close with, just start talking to them about this. Ask for them to just check in with you once a week or once every other week to see how things are going. If you have somebody in your corner that you can turn to when you're like, I just said no, I really want to walk that back. I'm having a tough time. You know, it's not the same as having somebody come over and babysit for a few hours so you can, you know, get some time to yourself, but it's better than nothing. Right. It's like having a sponsor. Yeah. And you can, you can extend that to a couple of people whose judgment you trust. So you don't worry that you're overwhelming any one person, but this is at a level where somebody else in your life should know about this problem in your marriage. Um, if only so you don't go through it all by yourself. I'm nodding vigorously. Yeah. It's, it's a good vigorous nod. And you know, yeah, your wife is in a perpetual state of panic. It doesn't sound like she has a lot of capacity to make the kind of choices you normally see her making that are fairly clear, reasonable, uh, can incorporate the interiority of others because right now she is overwhelmed by her untreated anxiety disorder and she does need treatment. You can't force her into a doctor's office, but you can say, you know, I, I, I can no longer keep giving in when you get really distressed at me. So I'm going to start leaving the room, calling a friend um, if you don't respect my no, I can't force you to go talk to a therapist, but you know, this is not working. When I do give in and I give you all of my time and energy, it doesn't actually make you feel more resourced the next day. And um, it doesn't help me get any sleep. I, a million percent. And and also like, um, if teaching is so important to her, this is not going to make her a good teacher. Getting treatment will make her a good teacher. I'm, I'm sure she's excellent in all the ways the letter writer says she's excellent, but... Um, she won't be able to keep teaching or, or you know, just a relaxed teacher is, is ultimately going to be um, better for their students than a, a wound tight teacher. Yeah. And I feel like I've been really hard on her. I have so much sympathy for her position. Oh and I also can really relate to when your anxiety is going untreated and unaddressed, the way you just fully believe this is just how life is. Anyone who thinks medication or uh, therapy would be helpful is living in a fantasy land. And this is just the way it is. Um, so I really get it's very difficult to see reality objectively from the inside of an ongoing state of panic. Um, so you can be really loving and hold that line. So sorry. So this next letter... Luckily, we get to feel a lot less compassion for the difficult person or not none, but you know, enough less that things get easier. So the subject here is how do I tell my abusive mother to back off? Dear Prudence, I'm a 24-year-old woman who was physically, emotionally, and verbally abused by my mother for my entire childhood. It only stopped when I left home at 18. However, I have some siblings who aren't able to leave home even though they're now adults. This means I have to see my mother just to see them. She's very controlling and manipulative. She pretends like nothing ever happened between us and never acknowledges her abuse. At this point, I've just decided to live with that so I can move on and see my siblings. But lately, she's started seeing us as friends. My life's been hard due to the mental health issues brought on by my mother's abuse. She's been trying to call and text every day, constantly checking in, and I'm not comfortable with this. I know she's not trying to mend anything because she's already fooled me before with this act. How do I tell her to back off in a way that will still allow me to see my siblings? I learned from the Dear Prudence column that <laughs> that you do not, uh, you just tell her to back the F off. And you, you set a clear boundary and you maintain that boundary. And your priorities are you 
Number one, number one, like big, all caps, you. And then it's your relationship with your siblings, which is clearly important to you. And maybe your sibling safety, which I'm a little concerned about. And that's it. Your mom is actually not your responsibility, not your priority, not you don't have to accommodate her. You set a boundary in stone and it's probably not having a relationship with her, communicating with her at all. And and you go from there. This one's tricky because I would probably have a different type of answer if the siblings still living at home were underage. Yeah. Not not because it's it's easy to uh, be living with an abusive, manipulative, controlling parent when you're over 18. It's just that even if they are financially dependent on her, there are other options and other ways for them to potentially maintain some semblance of distance from her in a way that if they were underage, you might want to prioritize their safety and well-being higher up on the list. Which is not to say that, oh, they're over 18, who cares? Like, let them do whatever they're going to do. Just that it's a different ball game, if that makes sense. And I didn't know, like, what the siblings' circumstances were, like, if they were able to leave that house or not, and what kind of situations they were dealing with. But since the letter writer doesn't say, and I feel like if it if it were really, like, if, if there was a... a disability that allowed, you know, wouldn't allow them to leave, that that would be mentioned. But yeah, I was wondering whether in addition to possible financial dependence, um, if there were also other factors that would mean that living on their own or living with other people outside of the immediate family might not be a possibility for years to come. And I agree, you know, it, it, I can't really speculate there. So I'll just say letter writer, given what you do know of their circumstances, if the ways in which she, um, affects their ability to contact you means that they don't have access to their own cell phones or you know that they're not able to protect their cell phones in such a way that she can't go through them. That That's one factor. If you think that they can, that might be one route through which you can bypass her, which is just to text them directly, FaceTime them directly, um, any way that you can establish independent modes of yes. communication. Um that would be really, really good. Yeah. I mean, whatever it is, like letters to a P.O. box, meeting up, whatever. And then if if some of the distance means that, you know, they're devoted to her in a way that you're not, or or they believe her to be a victim of, of an unfair world rather than somebody who has abused and harmed children, that might also be something you'll need to take into account. Um, sometimes in families like this, abuse is unevenly distributed, um, or some children respond by wanting to get out and get independent as quickly as possible, and others respond by wanting to stay close to the abuser and to placate them because that way feels safer and like they have more control. So you may also need to gauge whether or not it's safe for you to be in contact with some of your siblings if you feel like they have chosen as adults to enable and justify her abusiveness, her denial of her past abusiveness, whatever the case may be. Again, you letter writer will know better than than either of us there what what those situations are like. So then I guess the question is really, you know, how much do you tell your mother about the boundaries that you're drawing with her and why? Because there can be a version of this where you decide internally, part of the boundary here is she doesn't get access to my in- interior emotional state. She doesn't get to know what I think about our relationship. She doesn't get to know why I'm distant. I'm not going to share that with her. I can't trust her with that information. I'm just going to set her number to do not disturb so that I don't get a ton of notifications if she calls me every day. I'll respond when it's convenient for me. If she asks a bunch of questions about where I've been, I'll just stay bland and cheerful like, oh yeah, sorry, I've been really, not even sorry, like, oh yeah, I've been busy this week. What's going on? Um, Just Mm. like 
give her nothing to to hang on to in a conversation if she wants a fight or explanation. That's hard. That's not easy to do, especially with somebody who abused you growing up. Um, so if that route doesn't seem possible, you know, Claire, do you think then at that point that the letter writer seems like they're in a position to say like, I'm not going to call you that much and here's why? Do you think that they should wait on that one? What's your What's your thoughts there? I have a really hard time saying. I, I think it's what's clear to me is that the letter writer should decide how much of a relationship, if any, to have with their mother. And zero relationship is a valid choice. I, I, have, I have less clear thoughts about the best way to initiate that. Yeah. Because, because I, you don't want to trigger someone's backlash at you. I, I suppose you could. And you also, like you, she would know, actually, why you were not choosing to have a relationship with her. You don't have to explain it to her. It's, it's, you've actually made it quite clear to her. And um, any, any um, confusion on her part would be a performance. Yeah, I think that might be the kind of key here, which is you say, letter writer, that you have had a difficult life because of your mental health issues that are directly related to the abuse that she has caused you. And so one thing that I do want to weigh, and I don't say this lightly or like, hey, fuck your siblings, who cares? But if there's a chance that not taking her calls every day and not pretending to be best friends would cause her to forbid you from contacting your siblings— you know, if if that's if you try the whole like bit busy, who cares? Um, what'd you have for lunch today? Um, if that route doesn't work and you need to shut that down, you need to block her number, you need to take that space, you know, it it may be that that is the best thing for you. And you can encourage your siblings to get in touch with you independently and say, I love you. I think she's abusive. I think that your life will be so much better if you can get out from her house. If you ever need help doing that, please let me know. Please reach out. I will help. But I, I, can't, um, I can't go through the performance she's trying to put me through. Um, I, I think that would be incredibly reasonable. And I would hope that your siblings would understand. And maybe it would even encourage them to mm. consider following in your footsteps. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Or, or seeking the letter writer out on their own at some further point in their lives and, and evolution. Yeah, I think you should put seeing your siblings very high on your list of priorities, but not at the top. I think there should be a couple of things that you should bear in mind in terms of like, if I am constantly in a state of distress and bewilderment and having to talk to my abuser like we're best friends, then I won't be able to have like a a healthy, happy, loving relationship with my siblings because I will be in a state of crisis. And that's that's no good for, for you or for them. And I'm so sorry. I really, really am one of the most baffling and awful things about trying to relate to a parent after an abusive childhood is this whole phenomenon that we sometimes see, which is just like, we're besties. What are you talking about? You had a great childhood. I bought you a bike. It's bad news. Yeah, it's no good. You did a lot more than buy me a bike. You did other stuff too. Let's move on to our next letter. It's, uh, I believe, your turn to read if you would be so good. Subject, work partners. Dear Prudence, my boyfriend and I work for the same company and occasionally for the same supervisor. He struggles at work while I usually receive positive feedback. An important factor, he is black and I am a white woman. I do also think I am a good worker and have some valuable insights about getting ahead at our company. My boyfriend recently received some critical feedback that I can tell is upsetting him, 
but he is also very defensive about it. On the one hand, he wants to discuss this criticism, but at the same time, he's not receptive to advice, often saying, I blame him for his unfair treatment at work. It is hard to watch him struggle when I know there are things he could be doing differently, but I understand it's also important to listen and not blame him. It's hard because he comes to me and then lashes out at almost any feedback or support I give him. If I don't provide any constructive criticism, I am accused of not really caring or wanting to help. If I do, I am blaming him. Also, to be honest, it does really sting that my boyfriend never acknowledges that I am good at what I do. I have tried for a long time to simply support him, but the criticisms keep coming, and he's not improving, and I'm still caught in the middle. At this point, I'm looking for a way to communicate with him to help him see his pattern here. I think his resistance to criticism from his supervisors and to feedback from me is really holding him back, and I want to help him see that. Or at the very best, I want him to understand why I can't take part in this Catch-22 advice game anymore. Big day for trying to figure out a work-life balance uh, with a partner. What's your sense here of one or two kind of main issues? Do you think the biggest issue here is for the letter writer to reassess how she's been incorporating her understanding of racism into these conversations? Do you think it's she needs to talk a little bit more about what she needs from her partner in terms of her work? Do you think it's just they need to figure out some sort of like, let's agree to not discuss work this much because it's clearly not working for either of us thing? Is that What do you think are the biggest two things here? I think one of the biggest things is let's figure out a way to step back from this conversation between the two of us. I think it's clearly not working. And it could be that the letter writer has some major racial blind spots. And it could be that she is causing harm without intending to, but causing it anyway in these conversations. And it also could be that um, their dynamic is such that he just can't hear feedback from her. And so regardless of why that is, um, it's not working. And he should seek feedback from someone else or someone's else. That's not a phrase. Other people. <laughs> yeah. I, I appreciate, by the way, your your commitment to to speaking as you write. Whereas when I'm on the podcast, I'm just like, I hope this sentence has a conclusion. Let's find <laughs> out. I'm just going to keep talking. Um, yeah, I think there are ways that you can acknowledge like what we're doing right now isn't working. That doesn't necessarily have to come down and make a final decision about who's right and who's not right. So much as just, I've noticed that we talk about work a lot and it often results in bigger fights. And I don't want that. Um, I want both of us to scale back on how much we talk about work with each other. We don't have to go to zero. It's not that I don't care. It's just that it's going to maybe take us a little while to figure out what's going wrong between the two of us when we try to communicate so we can figure out how to do it better. And I think in the meantime, it will do us both good to, um, find other people we can also come to with this. And, And so, you know, depending on your relationship, that might look like setting kind of like a weekly time limit. That might be a little overly formal, depending on how you two normally talk with one another, but some shared acknowledgement of this doesn't mean we'll never talk about it again. This doesn't mean we'll never be able to understand one another better, but we're just acknowledging that like right now we're doing it a lot and we're not doing it well. And when that, when that combination comes up, usually the best thing is to scale back to doing it a little bit so that if it goes badly, you can stop early on and say, let's pause. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, I would maybe pull back on the expectation that you will somehow make him see the pattern you see. 
Um, it's it's not clear that that's the best thing for him to see. And also, I just don't think he's going to see this thing that you're trying to point out, at, given the dynamic you have. Um, and it's frustrating that he doesn't see that you are good at what you do, but it seems like, for whatever reason, he's just swirling around in his own stuff about work. And I can imagine if he's in a position where he's worried about losing his job as a result of this feedback, it, it would be a little difficult for him right now to... Um, think about her, especially because they work at the same company. And so I can imagine why, again, that that doesn't mean she doesn't have reason to feel hurt by it. But I, I do have sympathy for my girlfriend and I work at the same company. Things are going great for her. And I feel really frustrated because I'm getting feedback that I just, I, I don't even know how to respond to it. And I feel uh, misunderstood or kind of some hostility from multiple sources so I would just encourage you, letter writer, you know, in the long run, once you're out of this kind of immediate crisis point, it will be great to revisit some of that with your boyfriend and talk about ways that you do want him to occasionally ask you about your own work and, you know, congratulate you when you do well. But for right now, I would I would go to more of your friends about that. I, I would go to other colleagues, anybody you want to kind of celebrate with, and you can do so in a way that you're not worried will hurt their feelings. Go do that so you can get it now. Yeah, you can't get everything from your partner. You yeah, and you already live together and work together. That's a lot, you know. Mm. <laughs> um, I, I think it's especially given how much more time people are often spending with their live-in partners during the pandemic, even if you're both working at some sort of external site right now. That's a, a lot of closeness. That's a lot of togetherness. I think having some kind of boundary at home that it's not just always like, you know, an after-work happy hour with the two of you all the time will go a long way towards making you feel like you have a work-life balance. Yeah. A little tricky that you both work for the same supervisor. Yeah. That's rough. Yeah. And I think the the thing that I wish he was doing differently, which is like he he doesn't like the advice that you give him. And then if you don't offer him constructive criticism or advice, he says, Well, you don't really care. You don't want to help. That's a difficult position for you to be in. So I think there you really have grounds to say, I feel pretty stuck. When I do offer you advice, you usually get pretty upset. When I don't offer you advice, you tell me I don't care. I do care. I also don't want to dictate to you. And this isn't working. So when we do occasionally talk about stuff at work, I'm going to limit myself to asking questions about how you're feeling, what you're considering doing, and potential other people that you could also turn to for support. And I'm just going to limit myself to those for now. You know, and tell me if that makes you upset. I'll, I'll hear you out. But I, I think that's the, the best next move because I don't want to keep having these same fights over and over. And I don't think you do either. Yeah, yeah. That feels really compassionate to to offer to listen, but offer that without the advice part or the mm-hmm. feedback part. Yeah, especially because I also think, you know, letter writer, again, without minimizing the very real possibility that you do have good advice and you do have successful experience at this job, I also think that it is possible that some of the things that might work for you as a white woman might not work for him as a black man in that workplace. There are ways in which the two of you could do exactly the same thing, say exactly the same thing, and be received in two very different ways um, that may have something to do with why you constantly feel sort of bewildered by his reaction to your suggestions. And I would just encourage you there um, to be very open-minded and really listen. And maybe even as you say, you know, I'm going to hold off on offering you my advice that might also be an opportunity to say, 
if there have been times when I've given you advice and it has felt like that sort of like smooths over or dismisses or minimizes your experience of being black at, at our workplace, I'm really sorry. And I'm really available to hear if you feel like I've been doing that lately. I don't want to do that, but I realize that there are simply ways that I can universalize my own experience in ways that are not universal and that I don't want to do. So, you know, after you share with him the things that you want him to change, I think that would be a really good opportunity to say, I I am prepared to be told that my experience at this company as a white woman does not directly reflect yours. Um, And uh, I'm I'm not going to bring my preconceived notions to that conversation. I'm available to hear ways that you feel like I might have been dismissive. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And then beyond that, you know, if somebody puts you in a kind of catch-22 situation, you can say, this is a catch-22 situation. I'm not going to give you advice. It's not because they don't care, but it's because I've tried that a lot and it's not working. So we need to try something else. Yeah. And and you could also like phrase it as, I'm not in a great position to, for whatever reason. Yeah. I mean, also, it's just like we're partners. We live together. We're too close, you know? That's yeah. a good reason too. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to our last letter, which I'm sure is something you are a little bit familiar with. You might occasionally hear from people who uh, want to make the same move and want want everyone else to jump on board with it. You know, it's interesting. I I don't actually, mm. I, I think the consensus is that they get paid so much less that it's not mm. something most public school teachers in New York City consider. I, I've had very few colleagues be like, um, I'm jumping ship to go private. I do have a lot of things to say about this one. <laughs> oh, good. Well, then I will read it quickly and we will move on to your thoughts because I've been a rambling man today and uh, I'm looking forward to getting <laughs> no, I have a <laughs> some expertise. Good. So the subject is private school, public woes. Cute. Dear Prudence, <laughs> I taught at a high-needs public school for 10 years. It was rewarding and meaningful, yet it basically broke me. Dealing with students' traumas and maladaptive behaviors while receiving essentially no support and facing ever-increasing state curriculum and assessment pressure burned me out so badly I quit teaching right around the beginning of the pandemic and have been doing side hustle jobs ever since. After having had about a year to rest and reflect, I realize I do love teaching, but the public school system is just too hard for me, especially as I get older. I'm moving forward with interviews for local private non-sectarian schools. The class sizes are smaller, the curriculum is more teacher-led, And people work here for 30 years because it's much easier to have a rewarding life outside of work. The problem is my old colleagues turned friends. We became really close while working in the trenches together. In fact, we collectively disparaged coworkers who left for private schools as, quote, selling out. I recognize now this was wrong of me. I've started floating a test balloon about teaching in a private school, and I'm met with awkward silence. My friends are all still toughing it out in public school. They're teaching over Zoom and honestly hating their lives. I still don't know how to tell them I will probably leave for private school, much less how I'll maintain a friendship with them in the future when I've made the very decision we used to judge so harshly in others. Any advice? Listen, the education landscape in America is bleak. Many, if not most, public and charter and independent schools are to some degree institutionalizing and dehumanizing and based on coercion and compliance over nurturing the development of human beings into their fullest, best selves. Um, I almost made a clean break with teaching because uh, it just seemed like a setup. And I was like, there's no teaching contract in America that is going to allow me to live a balanced life. And I happen to have found what I believe to be one of the only schools that (laughs) is a a liberating, um, humanizing place and allows me to live a balanced life. Um, But I think my situation is rare. 
Um, and there are ways that we can support children and schools and education workers toward a more healing, liberating education system beyond simply being employed as public school teachers. Um, many public school teachers perpetuate harm. Many public school teachers do this inadvertently because they're working in dysfunctional systems that are deeply dehumanizing. As a teacher in a racist society and a racist dysfunctional school system, I have personally caused harm. Systemic racism and dysfunction are the water you swim in as an educator. Um, so working in a public school doesn't just tick the righteousness box and you can move on. Um, and working at an independent school doesn't make you the devil. If you feel like a like an educator, a pedagogue in your soul, um, find a place where you can do that joyfully. Um, the question is, how can you, as a private school teacher, embody your most deeply held values? How are you challenging your students to consider things like privilege, different forms of systemic oppression, intersectionality, power, interdependence? How are you supporting their families in considering these things and your colleagues and the administration and the board? How can you, in your non-teaching life, in your voting, in your activism, in your activities and reading and conversations, embody those values? And if your colleagues think that... Um, you can't embody those values in any other way than teaching for a public school, then they've just got really narrow glasses on. That's my treatise. I have been nodding my head very vigorously during this <laughs> treatise. Um, thank you so much. I have talked before, usually to parents who are considering sending their kids to private school. And usually in those circumstances, I've gone pretty hard for don't do that. And I really, really appreciate this perspective because it is a useful reminder that I think it would be a really good thing if, uh, as a country, we invested in public schools such that they were humane and safe places for all children, and um, we did not also have a highly segregated uh, private school system where people could just kind of zoom their kids out. But I also think it is so true and important to remember, it is not like working at a public school is a universal good and anyone who does it is doing the best thing. Um, or that an independent person deciding I'm not going to teach at a public school for the rest of my life is single-handedly or even partly responsible for those huge systemic issues. Um, so I think that's that's the right view to take here, which is simply look for other ways, especially um, in terms of like interpersonal support that you can give and voting that you can pursue, legislation that you can pursue that supports all students and all children. And, uh, you know, if you are able to find a decent job where you think you could work somewhere fairly happily for 30 years, you know, that's probably good for you. And I think you can talk to your colleagues about this and make it clear, you know, I don't need you to cheerlead this decision. We've talked about this a lot from multiple angles. You do not have to think it's the right move for me, but I, I want you to know that I'm doing it and um, I hope we can continue our friendship. And I hope that they'll meet you there. You know, it's it's not it's not a problem that's going to be addressed by single-handedly convincing individuals to stay teaching at public schools forever. And unhappy teachers living unbalanced lives are not good for students. Yeah, yeah. And that's so hard because then I feel like, yeah, I mean, there's just, there's so many, it's not just, it's not just be unhappy in a public school teacher or be happy and be a good teacher in a private school either. But it's simply also true. You've already left your public teaching job. You're already not teaching in public schools. Um, and if you've been able to maintain some of those friendships, albeit with some une unease, hopefully that is a good indicator that they were not only friends with you because you were a public school teacher and that they will drop you. But I think the best way to move ahead is to just address it straight on. Don't 
avoid it because then I think you'll both kind of build up uh, assumptions about what the other is thinking um, and that will contribute to further distance. So I think you would just say, I I've, I felt uncomfortable about the idea of telling you this. Here's the choice that I've made. I really, really hope that we continue to have like a loving, robust friendship, even if you're just like, I think this decision sucks. Um, and, you know, you still have my solidarity and support, but I was never going to come back to public school teaching. So that was that was already not going to happen. Right, exactly. And, you know, if if you do find that you're able to make a good living and have a decent work-life balance and you can occasionally throw some money towards your friends to buy supplies for their underfunded classrooms, you know, look for ways to help out. You don't have to, like, make up for getting a job that you like by constantly flinging cash their way, but, you know, any little ways that you can help support them would be good. Yeah, yeah. And I, I do, I do want to come back to the, um, like, I, I think if, if you work at a, at a private school, but your values support public school, then you should, you should live those values in your teaching mm. and you shouldn't avoid conversations about class and privilege and race and power and all those things. Like this is the world we're all swimming in and, and nobody is exempt from it. And, um, you might be in a particular position to challenge the thinking that people are exempt from it in that space. Yeah. I think the last thing that I would add here is just, I, I don't want to discount the ways in which uh, teaching with relatively little institutional support was overwhelming, but I would encourage you, letter writer, to think really differently about your experience with your students, mm. um, both because you're going to run into traumatized kids at private school a uh, hundred million percent real, you know, trauma and, and parents who are going to be in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Trauma and money um, do not always make for a, an easy teaching experience. Um, so, no, I, but I guess I, I think really just my thought there was like the problem was that you were dealing with students who were already under resourced in a school that is under resourced, receiving insufficient support on both ends, both the teacher and the students were. Um, and not that I felt the letter was quite there, but just like, it's not like public school kids are just too traumatized. No one could reasonably offer them help or assistance. We have to just wash our hands of it. I think that line of thinking can eventually contribute to this kind of idea of this is an unfixable problem. It's not, mm. it's a fixable Mm-mm. problem. Um, it's just, that, thank you for saying that. <laughs> yeah. It's just that the problem involves things like give people money. Um, people need money. Parents need money. Parents need money so that they can look after their kids. And, you know, parents without money are often criminalized for things like not having money. Um, and so, again, a letter writer, not that you were saying, like, these kids are awful and bad. Um, just, I would really focus on when you think about why you left. Um, it was the lack of institutional support so that you could do your job. Um, yeah, and it's like institutional to the to the level of federal, state, and local government. Right, right. And maybe someday you will find an opportunity to work at a different public school and you may decide that you want to try another one. Um, it's possible that they will not all be as overwhelming as that one school that you taught at for 10 years. It will also help to remind yourself that was one school. You know, that was 10 years yeah. at one school. It's not every single public school. Again, you don't have to. You are not under an obligation to do that. But, um, you know, leave yourself open to that possibility. And good luck. Yeah. I'm I'm glad you're hopefully going to get a job where you can have a work-life balance. That's a good thing too. And to keep teaching, which it sounds like you like to do. Yeah. 
Claire, we kind of did it. That's crazy. This is how it's done. It's This is exactly <laughs> how it's done. Um, how you feeling? How you doing? How's your work-life balance this afternoon? My work-life balance this afternoon is awesome. I skipped a meeting because um, I'm going to get an email about returning to school buildings on my birthday on March 22nd. Oh my goodness. <laughs> what a sentence. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of like, I'm, I'm kind of uh, tripping is the, is the word. I just don't want to sound like I'm from California. Um, I used to listen to this pretty avidly on my very depressing drive home from the hardest teaching job I ever had in my life in Holyoke, Massachusetts. <sighs> I listened to the Dear Prudence podcast. Um, and so I have all of these like super specific memories of, of certain parts of the podcast at certain parts of the drive, like rounding this curve or waiting at this light. Oh man. And I remember, <laughs> so it's so weird how that happens. Like how those two things like marry themselves in your brain. Um, and I remember this one guest you had years ago uh, who had a really terrific English accent. And she kept saying, well, that's because capitalism is the problem. Friend, I married that woman. Wait, what? Yeah, that's my- That's who that- I married her. That's your partner? Yeah, that's Grace. Oh my gosh. She's so fabulous. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> I didn't realize that was Grace. It's not the only reason I, I married her, but yeah, that was definitely her. <sighs> that phrase in her voice has just recurred in my head ever since. Like, I, I say it with some frequency, not in that accent. <laughs> This is one of the most charming anecdotes that I've ever gotten to have on this show. And I'm very much looking forward to playing it for her later. <laughs> I feel very silly that I didn't realize that. <laughs> I feel, feel I, listen, I have a different person on this show every week. You do not have to keep track on which ones of them I have married. That would be a lot of work. <laughs> oh, that's delightful. Claire, thank you so much for coming on the show. You are a delight. Congratulations on your book. And uh, just thank, thank you. you again. This has been wonderful. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. I would I would really critically look at the part of yourself that feels relieved when you talk about class struggles without the weight of identity. Which identities are you sick of hearing about? Mm. Which ones feel like a relief to get away from? What is the identity that feels like a safe, comfy default that you like thinking about and then also not thinking about how that's what you're thinking about? Mm -hmm. Ask yourself those questions. I can't answer them for you. I have some theories. I have some gut instincts. But uh, you're, you're going to have to do the work there. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod.